You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey, everybody. You found it. You're in the right place. What you're looking for, it's right here. This is All the, your dreams are coming true. Everything is happening here. <laughs> Um, this is get ready for a magic carpet ride. This is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm here with Jasmine. <laughs> hey, <laughs> no, I'm here with my friend Penelope. No, <laughs> my friend uh, Ben Sternke, hey, and uh, it's good to be in your ear holes again. Uh, we are in a series on power, and we're talking about how if we and when we get power wrong in the church in the world. All hell breaks loose, and we're exploring what would it look like to recenter our notions of power, um, not on some best practices from the business world or the way that the country works, but what if we centered our notions of power on the power we see revealed of God in Jesus Christ, Mm. right? Very simply, uh, let's let the love of God revealed in Jesus shape our power rather than notions and conceptions of power shape everything right. from outside the kingdom, shape everything right. else. Rather than letting those, projecting those onto God and thinking, God just must be those things times 100. Yes. Times infinity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, in order to help us think through what this means for justice in the local church, I want to welcome our friend, Adam Gustine, to the podcast. Hey, Adam. 
Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yes, it's a hey, pleasure. This is the second time Adam's been on the podcast. Welcome back. A, re- a returning. Do we get jackets at some point? No, you have oh, to be like on members that's club. That's a great idea. It's a great idea. You'd have to buy it yourself, but you're welcome to. <laughs> um, yeah, but get yourself a jacket. You've earned it. <laughs> well, most people when they're on the podcast, they get a, a little uh, teardrop tattoo by their eye, and you could get two. <laughs> you could of get them. two of them now. Just yeah. that you've been on twice. Yeah. Whenever you see mm-hmm. those tattoos out in the world, by the way, it means that means they've been on the Gravity <laughs> Leadership Podcast. A I couple think that's times. what it means. Uh, okay, so Adam, uh, will you introduce yourself again to our listeners? Uh, where you are, uh, where you are, and what you're doing these days? Yeah, uh, yes, I live in South Bend, Indiana, and I wear a couple of hats. And the primary hat that I wear is that I um, direct Cove Enterprises, which is a Enterprise and Economic Development Initiative for the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. So part of our commitment to mercy and justice in the denomination is to think through issues of economics and how that uh, works in context of poverty across all kinds of different spaces. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're, I don't know, a couple of years into trying to build something like this out. So we proactively try to launch um, economic development initiatives through local churches on the ground in their context. So I, uh, the other hat that I wear is that I, I help lead one of those projects called Jubilee Ventures here in South Bend. It's, a, it's an incubator project where we're trying to come alongside community business owners uh, and create pathways for community business on the, on the west side of our city. Yeah. So those are the two primary things that I do. That's awesome. This, uh, this is, it's really great that you're leading something denominationally that you're doing locally. Yeah. It, it, um, one, I'm, that's one of the things I'm most excited about is that um, it can get easy to, to talk about concepts without really yes. working it out on the ground and seeing, testing whether or not it's real. And, and I think that in some ways uh, justice is, is, is an easy way to do that because justice in community is so relational Hmm. Um, and we can devolve into ideas and um, ideals yeah. that don't get tested uh, in the real work of relationship. So there's a yeah. lot you can learn from Man, trying to do it. That is so true. I'm, yeah, so true. I'm just reflecting on like uh, like what we do as well and how much I love being both a local church pastor and being able to kind of talk about being a local church pastor with other people. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, right. it's a really good balance. So yeah. 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 Not, not that it's wrong to do full-time one of those or the other, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. A point of connection for me. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah. So Adam, you're, uh, we want to hear from you. You've written a book um, that just came out called Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. And in this book, uh, as I read it, um, I was struck by how, uh, our our notions or conceptions of power and our socially embodied power uh, from just who we are and on our demographics, how that shapes the way we see and engage in justice. Um, would you would you kind of set that table for us a bit? like what what are some of the ways that our social location or our our story shapes the way that we conceive of and enter into making things just? Yeah, well, I mean, the, you could probably tease this out in a lot of different ways, but um, you know, as there's all kinds of examples of how 
that can get worked out in community. So I think about um, the, t- the temptation that I have to believe that I see things fully um, because of my sort of social location in the world and how that gets habituated into me over time. Wherein, you know, when you're in seminary and you're in, you're in theology class and you read white men, uh, but then there's, a, there's an elective over here called black theology or an elective over here called uh, feminist theology or something like this, you, you, you get trained to sort of normalize the base way that I see the world. This is the normal way to see the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything else is sort of exoticized, a couple of clicks off of normal. Um, and so I guess what I mean then is that I'm sort of trained to believe that the right answer begins uh, with the way that I see the world. And for me to be convinced otherwise would take a, actually a lot. And, and people who come to the, to the question of, of leadership or the local church from a different social location, um, it's a lot more difficult for me to naturally assume that I should take seriously what they're saying. As an example, when I, I was um, in a doctoral cohort and they assigned uh, for, our, for our actual theological reading um, a book by Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, the very first day, there was one guy that was like, yeah, I was really nervous about having to read this. You know, Martin Luther King, you know, liberal. And, you know, that's kind of how he phrased it. Yeah. Um, but it was a reminder to me that, um, that there's, there's plenty of uh, liberal theologians who are white, um, but it's a little easier to distrust something that comes from a different social location. Yeah. I think it's all kind as just as an example, I think there's all kinds of ways that that works out then in terms of power in the local community where mm. there are certain voices that get trusted. There are certain voices that are um, accepted at the table of leadership, uh, maybe without uh, qualification. Yeah. Um, whereas we set a higher bar for others to sort of prove their fidelity or prove their, um, they're not heretics or whatever. So mm. yeah, as an example, that's the kind of thing that I think happens a lot. Yeah, right. So we have this assumption that there's a default way, a normal way, a regulating way of seeing the world. And for most of Western culture, that's been a white male way of seeing the world. And you mentioned being in seminary and, and you could take electives. <laughs> I love the word you used, these exotic theologies, right? Yeah. So there's like, yeah. here's Ooh. black theology and, and women theology. But what's interesting is, by and large, the systematic theology or the New Testament uh, commentaries read in New Testament classes, they were all written by white people and most of them white dudes. But it wasn't called white theology, right? Yeah, <laughs> like that. That gets relegated for like um, may, maybe like southern uh, cessationists. Wait, is that right? Segregationalists. Oh, cessationism is a different thing. Segregationalists, <laughs> or uh, you know what I mean? Like that gets relegated for people who own slaves, maybe, and people mm. who argued for that. Mm. Um, which I think is is a convenient way of excusing the fact that. We, we do have a perspective, just like these other exotic perspectives, sure. that we've, no, we've laid over other people to norm it, you know? Right. And there's, mm-hmm. there's yeah, some and, interesting power there at work. And the, the, the perspective there that's, that's, is that we have an entire culture and society that normalizes me. So, I, you know, I, I'll say for me, it's like a white American male uh, society is sort of set up to see me succeed. That's the rule rather than the exception. Right. Um, and so if that's the, if that's the case, then um, there, the questions of justice uh, don't feel to me like this isn't equitable anymore. But it's really just because I'm encountering the fact that 
the world has been set up to see me succeed, thereby being set up to see other people not succeed. And when those two things collide, then it, then then I feel uh, like I'm the victim, uh, and yeah. so I become I become less likely to be open to the kinds of changes we need to make yeah. uh, to create a more equitable and flourishing yeah. system. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about like even change theory. And people, everybody is accustomed to sort of noticing what they're losing when something's changing. Um, and I think especially what you're, if what you're losing is a sense of privilege that you didn't realize you had, I think, I can't remember who, who said this initially, but like when, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality will feel like oppression. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I can't remember where uh, I read that. Is that so. Carrot Top who said that? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um <laughs> The uh, political theologian Carrot Top. Carrot Top. Yeah. No. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. So part of. So part of the way that power works. I'm. I'm here as we as we're talking here. Part of the way that power works in our perspectives of justice is, is like even before we try to do anything, the way that we even look at what are the problems that need solving. Right. What. What are. What are the issues that are before us? Even. Even at that point. We're struck with a power issue where my perspective, especially as a white. American male, my perspective has been so normalized that that it takes some work for me to realize that what I'm seeing is not necessarily what's true objectively, but it is a perspective among many, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, and we need more perspective. So, yeah. so even, even like as we're looking at issues of justice, like as we look at them, power comes into play. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And I, and I actually think one of the most difficult conversations is to uh, help someone who has never s- thought of themselves as having a perspective, but sort of defaults to thinking that they see it omnisciently, yes. own the fact that they speak from a social location. There, there are particulars about you, the people that you are a part of, and your actual story that shape the way yeah. that you see the world mm. uh, and shape the way that you engage in it. Uh, and, and in my experience, that's one of the initial points of conflict is that even in situations where I try to narrate my own social location, there's something about saying that I am a white American male that makes other white American males feel judged. Uh, And it's a very interesting dynamic to me, but, but um, it's actually one of the very first points of collision that I encounter Hmm. is, is in narrating my own social location that, that people begin to be nervous yeah. There's something about losing a sense of omniscience that makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but but what I try to try to reinforce as often as as it comes up is to say that um, if I think I'm omniscient, but I'm really just seeing one side of the cup that I'm looking at, when I have the opportunity to enter into community with people who see other sides of the cup, um, then why would I refuse to to get a fuller picture? Right? It's, mm. There's actually freedom. Yeah, there's actually freedom in owning that I have a perspective, that I have a bias, that I have a standpoint. Um, uh, but it feels like loss, maybe, and I think that's kind of an illusion. Yeah, yeah, that's super fascinating to me. Um, we could have a whole podcast about why that's hard for people. Um, but I, I love the way that you've you've restated it that it's you're not losing omniscience, you're losing your illusion of omniscience, and so Correct. really you have nothing to lose. You have only t- something to gain, which have, is another perspective. You have nothing to lose that you wouldn't want to lose anyway. Right. Unless unless you're the vision of the good life for you is a is a life of delusion. Right. Right. 
where you you get to maintain this illusion where I'm in control and I see things as they are. Which yeah. I, maybe that's the seduction of it. Well, the interesting thing to me, and this is why I think justice and discipleship belong together in conversation all the time, hmm. is that um, in the in the church world, you know, I, we would want that for everyone in every way, and then we bring up issues of justice, and and then we become nervous about it. Hmm. This idea that you would live an illusion um, that that you know you, we would never want people chasing after celebrity in an unbridled way. Right. Uh, that's a discipleship issue. But then right. when we talk about the issues of justice, no, they don't get all nervous. It's, like, it's all the same. Yeah. It's all the same. It's this mm-hmm. like, do we want the life that's really life or do we want something much less than that? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to press into this a little bit because um, people get nervous around issues of justice, like you just said, right? So you have people that will accuse you of being a social justice warrior, Right, mm-hmm. you're trying to smuggle socialism in the back door of the kingdom of God, Adam. Right, or there's people that on the maybe on the other side have this sort of um, pride in being more woke than you, or woke longer than you, uh, and and so it's like even hard to talk about. Like you mentioned economic justice, that makes people like, oh, are they gonna bash capitalism, or or, or you know what I mean? Are they gonna tell me I have to give all my money away? Like we have all this anxiety about justice, and I just. I don't quite understand why there's so much a interest in it and b like anxiety about it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I um, I have started to wonder if it's not uh, connected somewhat to the story of the the rich young ruler, um, and that's probably why it makes people nervous, right? You start talking <laughs> right? about questions like this, and Jesus told somebody to sell everything they have and give it away. Um, <laughs> You know what, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say that that's the answer for everyone at every time, but it does strike me that this guy walks away sad. He thinks he's been following all the rules and he walks away sad because he can't do it. It seems like in this guy's case, wealth is the thing that he was using to give himself a sense of worth and value, that he was creating some sense of identity around his, well, this is what makes me matter uh, in the world, and it's how I find out that I am worth something to someone. Mm. Um, and so Jesus, Jesus, I think, knows that and puts his finger on this thing like, no, you're actually going to have to give up the things that you've been using to create a sense of status for you. Mm. There's a reason why we call him a rich young ruler, right? Um, mm. Like that's an identity marker for him. Mm. Um, but, you know, in, in both of the situations that you were talking about, Matt, um, I, I feel like I get that sense. Like we all struggle all the time to not claim some sort of false identity marker that gives us a sense of value and worth. I mean, you even think about like the story of the prodigal son, Mm -hmm. both brothers in that story uh, use the term slave to describe their life in relation to their father. They both use it. Yes. One of them's like, I'm not worthy. So I'll be a slave. And the other one says, I've been slaving forever. And so I am worthy, but both of them sort of fall under the delusion that like what they've done is what merits the father's favor. Hmm. So, like in 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 the case of the examples that you gave, like what if we were resolute in saying, you know what, my social justice with itness is not an identity marker. Hmm. So I am free to just be the beloved of God and to lean into His shalom as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would that change the way that we interact? Yeah, I think it would. Um, yes. I think we'd be a lot less hmm. older brotherish sort of uh, standing outside uh, mad about people 
showing up and saying, I want to care about this now. But in terms of the people who are nervous about what it means, I think it's the same thing because you put your finger on stuff that they've used to create identity, be it wealth or be it social capital yeah. or be it oh, wh- whatever it is. I see. So you're threatening, um, you're not threatening their choices. You're threatening their self-identification. Their identity. Yeah. That's why I think it's so, so threatening. I think yeah. so. Absolutely. Huh. Because it, if, it, if the conversation gets political, like I've fully integrated my sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus with these set of political beliefs. Mm. So if that gets challenged now, now my identity is shaped that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, if we, yeah. if we talk about capitalism, well, you know, I live in a country that, that is fully shaped around the value of wealth pursued unchallenged. You know, there's an unquestioned virtue in that. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to question that virtue, then I've got to reshape the way that I think about what it means to, to be a, a virtuous person yeah. in I, the world. We leave a lot of those things out, and then we start bringing them up, and it feels like an add-on to the gospel. That's right. And I, and I think... Um I think this is closely tied in with like the Protestant work ethic as well, where we've come to see some of our, some of our, if I have money, if I have privilege, if I have wealth, we very easily draw a straight line from that to like, well, I worked hard for this. And yeah. so, you know, you're trying to take away from me something that I deserve and worked hard for, which, is, which again is an identity marker, right? Like I'm a hard worker. I'm not lazy. I, I work hard for my money and I should be able to keep it. And yeah. you know what I mean? And that feels like a self-evident truth. Like, right. Uh, when it, Right yeah. in the in the sort of uh, Western Protestant mind, that what you just described that meritocracy feels like a of course yeah the Bi- it's in the Bible somewhere I'm sure of it but you if know? you like go <laughs> if you go like spend time with other cultures it's not an of course in fact right. in fact it's actually it, a violation of their right fabric of their community to think yeah. like that yeah. like it may be true that you worked hard and it may be true that you have accomplished a lot um, but I. I still would like to know what that means. So yeah, you've worked hard. Yeah, you've accomplished a lot. But from a sense of like spiritual identity, does that give you a leg up on others? And I think that the way mm-hmm. then this works out in community is that when when we so closely uh, associate our level of achievement with um, our our worth and our value, then when we encounter people who have quote unquote achieved less than us. Uh, then we make it very. It makes it very difficult for us to enter into mutual relationship with them. Yes, uh, we begin from a posture of condescension. Yes, that's important. Uh, yeah, that's important. You talk about this in your book um, that that justice is inherently about mutuality, not simply uh, charity, not othering people that you're trying to help, but standing in solidarity with them. And you use this metaphor of different groups of people as high ground and low ground people, and how that's one of the difficult. Uh, divides of creating this solidarity and this mutuality. Can you speak to that? Tell us what high ground, low ground means and and how that fleshes itself sure. out. Sure. Well, I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, so we got a Bible song about building your house uh, on a rock versus building your house on the beach, right? And um, so you find high ground, it's strategically advantageous. Uh, you don't want to build your house down in a bog or down on a riverbed because it's going to flood. And the people that, you know, do that, are vulnerable when the river rises and people that are on high ground are impervious to that. Well, there's a social version of that very same thing. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's self-evident that there is a social high ground, a place where um, movers and shakers congregate and work and live and play. And those are spaces that from the world's perspective are not vulnerable to the rivers rising. Um, But then there is that same sort of social low ground people who don't 
have access to that high ground and they live in spaces and work and relate to others very vulnerable to the storms of life. Hmm. Um, and, and we see those kinds of things all the time where people try to protect their space from folks who live at the low ground. And that cuts across all kinds of different categories. Um, and so hmm. you, you have that dynamic uh, in the world where there are movers and shakers and moved and shaken people. Uh, and, and, and the entirety of our culture is set up to keep those two groups apart. So can I, um, can I, can I throw out a couple of examples that are coming to mind that, mm-hmm. to, to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying correctly? So in the news in the last, uh, recently, uh, Paul Manafort was sentenced to four years in prison for uh, doing all kinds of federal crimes. And a lot of people are up in arms about that because um, the judge was very lenient um, in the sentencing. Apparently, he could have been sentenced far more. And some of my friends are saying, hey, I'm a, pros- I'm a defense attorney, and my client stole 100 bucks and quarters from a laundromat, and they're serving uh, five to 10 years. Uh, or, uh, hey, my client voted as a convicted felon and didn't realize that she was a vic- convicted felon, she couldn't vote, and she was sentenced to 12 years in prison. And there's this, uh, you know, Paul Manafort's this rich, white, respected man commits a, quote, white-collar crime and gets four years for it. And these other poor, uh, often people of color, who commit uh, more, uh, maybe low-ground crime, <laughs> we could say, and they get sort of uh, penalized yeah. more more harshly for it. Is that an example of what you're talking about? For sure. For sure. I mean, you can even get more granular and every day than that. Um, when we were getting ready to move here to South Bend, uh, I told my realtor, I said, I want to look at this house. And she goes, I don't know about that neighborhood. And, um, it sort of comes, comes from a question that no, no, uh, uh, upwardly mobile person would choose to put themselves in a neighborhood like that. Hmm. Um, and that happened when we moved to Chicago as well. Our realtor was steering us away from potential places, just even blocks away from where we ended up based on this question of safety. So the high ground is safer than the low ground. That's why, you know, throughout history, armies want the high ground because it's safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how the world works too. So you, you want to find a place that's, that's safe. Well, that's the, like, one of the highest virtues of the high ground. The low ground folks don't get that opportunity. They live uh, vulnerable to all kinds of elements. Um, uh, but we act as though safety is something that, like, naturally everybody wants. Yeah, sure, everybody wants that, yeah. but not everybody gets that. Has right? access and to safety. And if you can afford it, you you will take it. Like, you should take it if you can afford correct. it. Correct. Yeah. Why would you and ever not take safety if you could afford it? That's correct. And then the question becomes, then when we build our gates... Uh, to protect the high ground, like who are we keeping out? <laughs> we're keeping out the people most vulnerable to the violence of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we're per- we, we create these insulated communities where we no longer want the people who, who may actually be saying, hey, could I not live uh, vulnerable to the storms of life anymore, please? And it's yeah. like, well, actually, you might make us more vulnerable if you come in here. So oh, yeah. let's, let's put a gate up and make sure that you can't, um, can't threaten that safety. Right. Right. But if you work hard, like I did, then maybe you can, right? I mean, that's kind of the implicit for sure. message. It's, you know? For sure, the, the, the probably- high ground traffics in, like, bootstraps theology. Like, um, but, but, yeah. but it is, well, the, the thing that's uncritical about that is that, is like, yeah, you may have worked hard, but you also need to acknowledge right. that um, you, 
it is impossible to achieve anything in the world without a network of support. Yeah. (laughs) That's impossible. Right. Um, And so like if, you know, like I've, I've, I could list some achievements in my own life and I could go ahead. Why don't you uh, list them all? (laughs) Yeah. Let me, I just so happens I prepared a list in advance. Um, (laughs) Just in case this occasion arised. I could live under the illusion that I am a self-made person or I could acknowledge that I live in a world that, um, wants to see me made. Uh, Mm. and so I can, um, Hmm. I can acknowledge that at every step of the way I can point to people and systems and networks and safety nets and all of that. And so, yeah, sure. I worked hard, but lots of people work hard and and they do it without the aid of all of those, uh, things that allow me to. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So then um, maybe give us some hope here. Like, I, I feel like if I ca- I mean, honestly, Adam, if I care about justice yeah. and, you know, I'm writing my check to Food for the Hungry once a month and, um, you know, we're praying in our worship time for uh, war-torn countries or people who are still experiencing uh, devastation from uh, natural disasters, etc. Um, like... And if what you're saying is true, then I feel like I'm the last person who who can lead something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. towards justice because mm-hmm. I I'd have a very limited. I, it feels a bit paralyzing to me. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. what what do I do? What do I do with that? What do you do with that? Well, I mean, I acknowledge paralyzing feeling. You know, I lived a number of years feeling that sort of paralyzed. I don't know what to do, and I don't want to do the wrong thing. I, I just, I wonder about, I wonder about in in the local context if it doesn't begin with us reframing our conversation around discipleship to really and seriously take into account people's social location. So many of our like churches have like, here's our discipleship program, but it's sort of like everybody enters in the same place and we go in the same direction. Mm. But what if uh, we invited folks on the high ground to give up being upwardly mobile and uh, become the kind of people like Jesus in Philippians 2 who let go of those identity markers of privilege and descend to uh, a posture of humility, whereas you know people who are on the low ground are already descended. Um, so we could call them into a different kind of thing that, that focuses on, uh, new life and resurrection. And I think what we would find is rather than like, uh, pretend like we are all the same, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that we're not creates the opportunity for us to disciple people more deeply and take those things into account. Um, so that, so that owning where we are is like the beginning of our discipleship process. Mm-hmm. It's the same gospel, but we all hear it from different places. So we got to be able to enter into the story in different ways. Yes, and I think if you look at Jesus, like every time Jesus interacts with a high ground person, he calls him to die. And every time he interacts with a low ground person, he's like, "Here's some new life." Mm. Um, Wait, and it's say almost- la, say la, say la, dude. That's huge. That is yeah. huge. That I is think that. Um, that is uh, just say that again. If you would. Yeah. Yeah. No, every time, and you'd have to check my math, but I think uh, every time Jesus interacts with a high ground person, so yeah. rich young ruler, uh, um, Herod, Pharisees, anytime, like anytime you have this high ground person, he is calling them to die. 
you know, I think about like Nicodemus, he's like, uh, you gotta be born again. Right. So he's like, how can I become a baby again? Like he's almost, you can almost hear it. Um, what are you talking about? I'm a man. Uh, (laughs) you can almost hear it, but you know, you've got this guy who's right. right. Like he's a (laughs) well-respected, educated leader in his community being told you got to become like a baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, this rich young ruler has to sell everything. Uh, and, 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 and even somebody like Zacchaeus, who we tend to frame as like this diminutive person, is this super unjust guy. Right. Um, and and what's nice about that story is you actually get a picture of somebody who chose the downwardly mobile path. The minute mm-hmm. he encounters Jesus, he's like, I'm wrong. I have to divest. Um, whereas the woman at the well um, is not asked to do that. And mm-hmm. I think about this a lot. Um I've, I've been in conversations where uh, pastors and, and whatnot, are, are they, the conversation kind of devolves around, you know what, as Christians, we should be doing this like simplicity thing. We should, mm-hmm. we should take a vow of poverty. And, and uh, that's what we should be calling like this very anti-consumeristic thing in our church. Like on the one hand, I totally agree with that. But on the other, the conflict arises when somebody from, say, who pastors a church in a community that's wrapped by poverty yes it's like you're telling us yeah that the thing you've enjoyed forever uh we should not taste and i think actually what they're trying to <laughs> trust say us is that, it's like, not very good <laughs> right yeah. we'll keep it all yeah we're uh, just gonna... actually what i think they're trying to say yeah. though is or what's going on is like um poverty for the rich is about divestment yes. poverty for the poor is this is the ill that has plagued and destroyed the community mm-hmm. and what we fail to see this is part of our the blindness when we think yes. we're omniscient is that we're saying there is abundant life in Jesus well for those who hold on to their wealth abundant life comes from giving it up mm. for those who are racked in a neighborhood with poverty and all of its ill effects why would i give into that that's not that's not <laughs> the real life of Jesus mm. like that's a different thing Mm. Um, there has to be a way to recognize that the way this gets worked out is always dealing with our social location. I think you can make an argument that that's the only thing that determined how Jesus interacted with a person was Mm. where they were standing socially when they encountered him. Yes. Otherwise it's the same story. We need an Adam Gustine study Bible. Little yeah. notes on the bottom of all Jesus's interactions, <laughs> Adam. That is Notice. that is profound, man. It's and I really think good. I'm 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 recognizing one of the maladies of the church I've been in is I've been in mostly high ground churches my whole life, mm. and the problem is we haven't known we're high ground. And in, yeah. and in fact, like some of the greatest injustices are perpetuated when high ground people convince themselves they're low ground. Right mm-hmm. when they when they take Jesus's promises to low ground people. And use it to sort of bolster their high ground profile. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I need uh, I need to go repent. This mm. is this well. Is... I think the I think the, the the hope there. I think that the hope there um, is that living on the high ground of your own making is is actually death. That's why yes. Jesus invites us out of it. Right. Um, but once he invites us into a posture of dying to self. Uh, once you're dead, there's new life. Like that's that's the great, beautiful thing about it. Eric Law talks about this in his book, "The Wolf Will Dwell with the Lamb," it's, um, a multicultural spirituality of leadership. I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And he talks about calling 
communities of leaders into a rhythm of death and new life. Mm-hmm. Um, but where we start matters. Yes. Um, some of us need to die first and some of us need to be uh, lifted up first. If I could, if I could put it that way, if that's not heretical. Yeah, no, that's great. That sounds good. I, 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 I just think, I think, Adam, this is so needed. We need a reframing of the justice conversation outside of the uh, dominant imagination most of us have in America for, for what justice looks like, which, is, which has been crafted and framed by a political ideology, right? Mm-hmm. So if I care about economic justice um, among the poor, I must be a Democrat. If I care about the unborn, then I must be a Republican, right? And, and I think what you're describing is if we can— if we can reclaim that the justice of the kingdom isn't uh, a privilege of either the right or left in America, but yeah. is a different power at work, yeah. then we can begin to live into uh, being a just church, being a just people that are bearing witness to the ministry, what Jesus actually did on the ground. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. I mean, this is kind of a paraphrase of Father Greg Boyle, but you know, I think we could frame it like, I think justice is about creating a community of kinship that God would recognize. Like that's kind of a <laughs> paraphrase of the way that he would talk about it. Yeah. But um, if I think you can think about God has always existed in Shalom community. Mm-hmm. And part of why he, God even creates is to widen the circle of people who get to participate in that community. Yes. Um, and sin breaks it down. And then we got injustice in the world. And then it seems like, big part of the gospel narrative is re putting together, you know, re yes. uh, reassembling this community where wholeness and flourishing life with God can be experienced. Yes. Um, so we perpetuate it when we exacerbate the division there. So yes, yeah. I think it's important. I love it, man. Your book is super helpful to give us a vision for uh, a justice that isn't beholden to or subverted by um, the dominant loud voices that want to assert and name worldly justice today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just highly recommend it. I mean, especially if you think, you know, um, you know, any conversation about social justice is just the jiggery pokery of the left. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> maybe you don't even. Yeah, know I mean, my, I don't. I don't fully understand that, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> um, Anytime you're engaging in jiggery pokery, it's time to repent. Yeah, you better yeah, turn. You, you better turn around. Right? Doesn't that I doesn't jiggery so. pokery sound like something that was illegal in like 17th century England? Yeah. Like, um, thou shalt not. Something sounds while, more while like playing something playing cards. It's something you do while playing cards. Play, whilst playing spades, <laughs> thou shalt not engage in any jiggery pokery. I'll say I don't know what it is, but I'm quite sure James Dobson is against it. <laughs> uh, it. It means trickery or deceit, and I I think he is against it. And I I just want to say I'm against jiggery I am pokery too. as well. I think I we can all so. agree on that. Uh, yeah, God's in God's kingdom of shalom. There's no jig, no yes. jiggery pokery. Yes, um, yeah. But if you yeah. think, if you, you think, were saying, yeah, if you if think you, that justice is all this jiggery pokery to yeah, get us all to yeah. vote for you know certain politicians, uh, read the book. I I just think we need to reclaim. So we need to reclaim that when Jesus talks about righteousness, he's not talking about some abstract religious principle, but that's the same word for justice. Mm-hmm. He's talking right. about justice. And justice is never an abstract concept for Jesus. It's yeah. always an embodied social justice. Always. Right. His embodied right. social justice got him killed because mm-hmm. he ate and right. drank with sinners. And that was a prophetic denouncement of all the high ground shenanigans and tomfoolery that was going on in his Jiggery day. Jiggery pokery. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and so no, I, 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 I think it's, I, you're exactly right. And, and, and the, the reason why I think I wanted to write this is because I've sat in the chair of the pastor trying to like work it out mm. in, in certain contexts. And it's like, okay, the, the, the big vision of God's justice, which lots of people write lots of excellent books about, I'm there, but what do I do? Yeah, because uh, I and I got a divided church, and I got all these issues. And I got people talking about we got to paint the windows, and that doesn't seem like the most important thing to do today. Um, so, like, what do I do in context? Mm. Uh, how do I begin to work it out? So, some of it is like, yeah, I, I want to reframe this notion about justice being something that we embody at the local level. But if that's true, then we're all going to need to like think through what do we do? Uh, yeah. How do we begin to work it out? And it's not like a blueprint so much as it is way to try and ask questions uh, for yourself and, and the leaders in the community. How, yeah. do we, how do we wrestle these ideas to yeah. the ground? What does it look like to take this idea of God shalom, this thing that you're talking about, Matt, about it being overwhelming? It is overwhelming. The only way it becomes unoverwhelming is to root it in my neighborhood because then it has scope that I can wrap my brain around. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. That's great. Dude, that's, that's killer. Uh, thanks, Adam. Thanks for being here. Thanks for writing this book, Becoming a Just Church. Um, how can people connect with you uh, out in the greater world? What, what are some ways to find you out there? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you can uh, connect with me through uh, my Covenant hat with Cov Enterprises. Our website is cov.enterprises. You can connect with me there. And then also you can uh, check us out at uh, jubileesouthbend.com. Uh, describes a little bit about our work, but it's it's easy to get in contact. So I'd love to for sure. I'd love to be able to connect with you there. Yes, yes that's great. And just the the vision of creating a new economy that's not beholden to the invisible hand of America, mm-hmm. which by the way isn't God's hand. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's a different hand, and mm. and uh, it's just beautiful, man. So God bless you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for this wonderful book and for um, yeah, all your wisdom. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media, too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.